Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Our scripture reading this morning is found in Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. Uh, we're reading from the New King James Version. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, and I quote, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the worlds of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. End of quote. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Would you open God's book, please, to Mark, the second chapter? I want to preach an expository sermon. That means verse to verse, and so it'll do you a lot of good for the sermon if you will be able to see a Bible and follow along. Mark, the second chapter, we're going to start in the first verse, just a couple of minutes, and I want to tell you that this is a great crowd, isn't it? This is, um, I didn't know what to expect, and I kind of thought that would be much smaller, and look at you. We have a lot of people visiting. Happy to have uh, happy to have you here, and we have a lot of people. I think watching live stream this morning, and so welcome this afternoon. So welcome to you. I know that Huntsville, Alabama, is not the same as other places in the country about the ice, and so uh, I expect we have people who are stranded at home still. And isn't it nice to get out? Mm. Uh, we, Cindy and I stopped by Hannah's house and to pick her up and the children, and there's a little decline there, and the shade, there's some shade of trees that covers the street, and so we just went right by her house. I mean, just, there's no stopping, and went down and turned around and came back, and we, we wandered a little bit, but we, we made it all right, and that's good, that's good. Which is your favorite of Jesus' miracles? I'm just going to tell you up front, my objective in this sermon is, is, first of all, for us to enjoy studying the Bible. I love to study the Bible. But also, I want you to love Jesus more. And that's a lofty goal. But what I would like when we get to the end of this is that you, you walk away and you just love him more than, than you did when you came in this room. Which is your favorite of the miracles? Which one would you point to? Think, let your mind run over the miracles of Jesus. And do you have one? Maybe you haven't thought about it. One that comes to the surface and you say, that's got to be my favorite. Well, I tell you what I want to talk about this morning is in the running for my favorite of the miracles of Jesus for a number of reasons. It shows his power, but it's not just that. He's going to just so plainly declare that he is the Messiah. And he's going to do it in a way that is ungetaroundable. And, and so it just draws my attention. I just love it. If you read a commentary about Capernaum, and we're going to be talking about Capernaum today, that's 
where this takes place in Mark chapter 2. If, if the commentary is 150, 200 years old, and, and some good commentaries are, learn a lot from that, it, you're apt to read a line in there that says, we don't know where this Capernaum was. We don't have any evidence of where it was. Because, because over the last century, that recently, and really over the last 50 years, a lot, lots of archaeological work has been done in Capernaum. I've been twice to Capernaum. And, and when you walk into it, there's a big sign that says the town of Jesus. Now, and that may seem like an exaggeration. It really isn't. I would say that's a valid statement, and we're going to talk about that today. There were a couple of things that were hard for Jesus during this period of his life. And bear in mind that, that his ministry was basically around the Sea of Galilee, we, we, the Galilean work that he did. But there were a lot of towns around that. Now, the Sea of Galilee, I'm going to show you a picture in a couple of minutes of the Sea of Galilee or the, the, the Sea of Tiberias, Lake Gennesaret. And you think about the sea, you think about the ocean, but it wasn't the ocean. It, it's just a very large lake, a very large lake and all these little villages around it. Capernaum is one of those. And, and uh, so much archaeological study in recent times. So anyway, there were a couple of problems that he had that followed him around. And one was what you would expect, which is that the Jews who were the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the upper echelon of, of power among the Jews, opposed him. They saw him as a Pied Piper, pulling away their adherents. People who would follow them are now following him. And, and they are the keepers. They are the protectors of Jewish orthodoxy. And so they resent him. Ultimately, they'll crucify him. And the second thing, though, was that it was very possible that, that with the miracles, and especially the healing, that he's going to be discovered or, or identified as somebody who is, is amazingly uh, talented health care, and it's free. I, listen, I'm not, I'm not belittling anything. I'm just saying you could imagine why the crowds would... I mean, we're very concerned about health care around this country. And it's very expensive and it's very complicated. What if, you, what if you had a source, you heard about a source, and no matter what, even death, no matter what the, the problem is, he can fix it and it doesn't cost anything. What would you do? Now, what Jesus did not come to be, at least not primarily, was, was the miracle worker who took away people's disease. Oh, no, no, I know. I know that he healed a lot of people. But bear in mind that that was never first place. That was never, ever the paramount point. It was never the capstone. The capstone was his preaching. It was the gospel. It was saving people's souls. And he's got this problem. So when we get to chapter 2 of Mark, you're coming in from a healing. It was a leper. And, and Jesus, well, let's just read it together. I'm in chapter 1 of Mark, beginning in verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, put out his hand and touched him and said to him, I'm willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he, Jesus, strictly warned him and sent him away at once. He said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Now, why would he say that? 
And the answer is because he's trying to keep the crowds down. He wants to be able to teach. That's the point is his teaching, his doctrine, his gospel. But, but this gets around and what's going to happen is that every day his house is going to be covered up with sick people. And he won't have the ability to do what he really came to do. That the healing of the sick was important, but it was only important to confirm the word that he was preaching. Well, anyway, we read on verse 45, ready for this? But he, that's the leper who was just cleansed, he went out and began to proclaim it. He did exactly what Jesus said don't do. He began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in, a desert, in deserted places, and they came to him from every quarter. And so when you get to chapter 2, he hadn't been, go, been able to go into Capernaum for some time. I don't know how long that period of time was, but he couldn't go in. They would, they would throng him. And apparently now it's quieted down a little bit. But when you get to verse 1, here's what it says. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Now, here's... here's uh, Come back up another slide, would you? There you go. Here's Matthew 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, so this kind of dates when this happened. Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, and then then he grew up in Nazareth, he moved to Capernaum. And uh, the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, we don't know where those lines exactly are about the different tribes and where the lines were for Zebulun and Naphtali, but we know that Capernaum was part of that land. And then you get to, to Matthew 9 and verse 1, and they refer, or Matthew refers to Capernaum as Jesus' own city. But your favorite may be the ESV for Mark chapter 2 and verse 1. In the ESV, instead of saying in the house, it says it was reported that he was at home. Now, I do not believe that Jesus owned property. I don't think he owned a house. Now, we can talk about that some more later, but, but Peter lived there. In Capernaum, you have five apostles. Five apostles live there. Peter, Andrew, James, John, and of course, Matthew, the tax collector. So that's kind of interesting too, isn't it? Five, except for Judas, I guess all of them came from from the region of Galilee. And these came from Capernaum. And so perhaps he stayed at Peter's house. Now, let me show you some pictures. Um, We're going to walk through these slowly. If you are in Capernaum and you look out on the Sea of Galilee, that's what you see. Now, so that gives you kind of a perspective of how large this is in the mountains and the the towns are all around it. So you're in Capernaum, that's the Sea of Galilee. Next slide. This is a spaceship. I just, that's not, I'm just teasing you, but this is Capernaum. And when you go, these are the ruins. You can walk through and see where people's houses were and the streets. But what happened is that in recent times, uh, as late as the 60s, 70s, 80s, excavations are done here on this spot where this monstrosity of a building is. The Franciscans built that. And they did, and by the way, it has a glass floor. And beneath it, are what's left of the ruins of what we believe to be Peter's house. So you have markings on the wall and you have the name of Jesus on the wall and various things from history, but you've got a first century structure, that much we know, and it looked like it was Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law, you know, 
was, was healed. And, and if this is Peter's house, this is where it was. And in all probability, that's where Jesus would have lived during the time that he stayed in Capernaum. Which is pretty interesting. Okay, next please. This is, see, this is a synagogue. Next slide. This is the same one, a different view. This is from the fourth century or maybe the fifth. Uh, and it's, it's a beautiful piece of history, but that's not really so interesting to me. It's the next slide. You have some of these uh, beautiful pieces that they dug up around there. Now the next one. Now look at this. What you have on the top there is from the fourth or fifth century. What you have at the bottom there is first century. This is, this is Jesus' home. This is, this is where Jesus lived. And there were miracles performed in Capernaum. So in Luke chapter 4, you have Peter's, mother, Peter, Peter's mother-in-law who was healed, which is just, I, I, there's something amusing about this. The Bible says she had a terrible fever. It sounds like that she's nigh unto death, perhaps she was. But he went and healed her, and immediately she got up and served them, which I just think that's kind of wonderful. That's just what she did. Uh, I've got to get in the kitchen, you know. She'd just been healed by Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, you have the centurion who came to Jesus. And this one's wonderful too. And, and he said, my servant is nigh unto death. And would you come and heal him? And Jesus admired him. After all, you know, a Roman centurion coming to Jesus to ask for a miracle of healing. There's faith here in a Roman centurion. That's just impressive. But you ain't seen nothing yet. Because Jesus said, okay, I'll go home with you. And he said, that's not necessary. That's not necessary. He said, I... I'm a man of authority, and I, I tell these men under my authority to go here or go there, and they go. And I say, you do this or that. That's what they do. You don't need to go to my house, Lord. All you have to do is just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And that's what happened. And that's what happened. In Mark chapter 1, then, you have a demon-possessed man. That was reserved for the early times, during the miraculous age. I mean, demon possession. We don't have it now. And, and we can develop that later. It, it, it wasn't a disease. It was an actual indwelling of, of these hellish presence, these hellish persons. I don't know a lot about them, but we know some from Scripture. But what is interesting is that this demon-possessed man is in the synagogue. Now, one more detail about that centurion, the, the miracle I just told you about, is that somewhere in that discussion between the centurion and Jesus, the Jews came up to Jesus and said, Jesus... I sure hope you'll help this man because he's very favorable to our people. And, and not only that, you know, he built us the synagogue. Well, that's interesting. I suppose he funded the building of the synagogue. And maybe it's the one, the ruins of which you just saw a moment ago. Well, I don't know this, but perhaps it's, it's the one that this man now is in who is demon-possessed. It says he's in the synagogue. He's in Capernaum there. Perhaps it's that very one. And there's a connection here. But the Bible says that a demon-possessed man identified Jesus as the Holy One of God. And Jesus wanted him to hush his mouth. You say, come on now. How, how do you figure that? I mean, wouldn't Jesus want people to know that he's the Son of God? Yeah, but he doesn't want it coming from the mouth of a demon-possessed man. Jesus wants to control the atmosphere as much as possible. His hour has not yet come. It's not time for the crucifixion. That's carefully planned out. And so he wants to regulate about the healing and about who's, how it's publicized and all of that. And it's true here. And he takes the demon, he removes the demon from the man. And then you have this one today from Mark chapter 2. 
And, and now let's begin in verse 2. I'm in Mark chapter 2 and verse 2. And immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Now, I want you to look around the room in your mind. Look around at the faces. There's tension in this room. There's different. People aren't the same. They're different. You have some that are truly interested in Jesus, and they, they want to know what, he's teach, what his teaching is, want to learn from this rabbi. But then you have others there. Verse 6 says the scribes are there. Now, Jesus is not like the scribes. In chapter 1 and verse 22, he taught as one that had authority and not as the scribes. How do you reckon the scribes took to that? They didn't like that a bit. They don't like him a bit. But now there's another verse. Let's go to the next slide. There's another verse I want you to see, Luke 5 and 17. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching. There were, this is this day. There were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. You know what they're doing, don't you? They're trying to find something of which they could accuse him. They want to defame him. They want to ruin him. Ultimately, they're going to crucify him. The time is not yet. But they're in that room. They just can't wait for him to say something, slip up, say something they can use against him. Now, ultimately, bear in mind, when he's crucified, it's going to be on the basis of blasphemy. We have a law. And he made himself God. It is, it is about blasphemy. Now, hold that thought, because that's going to be important in just a couple of minutes. And the Bible says that here in verse 2 that he preached the word to them. Oh, what would you give to have been there? What would it be like to sit in a room in a house that's thick with people, you're shoulder to shoulder, and just listen to Jesus teach? Maybe, maybe he taught what he taught those two men on the road to Emmaus after he was resurrected about the Old Testament and about the prophets and how they talked about him. Or, or John chapter 5 and verse 39, search the scriptures, he said to those Jews, search the scriptures. In them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Maybe that's what he said. I don't know. The Bible says that he preached the word to them. But what I want you to get is that Jesus was never confused about what his role was. It never was. It's true that he performed those miracles, but they had a purpose. It was to confirm the word, confirm what he was preaching. His purpose was about salvation. And that's what he came to do. He came to preach the word. Now, every person who was in that room, every person long ago has died, and their bodies have long ago returned to the earth, returned to dust. That's all. They're gone. What matters is not that Jesus healed people on that day. Even the man who was let down through the roof that we're going to talk about in just a couple of minutes, even him, he died. He eventually died. And, and he's been gone a long time. You know what matters? It's not that. I mean, it, it helped to, to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. But what really matters was the gospel. What really mattered was the doctrine that he came to teach. He came to save people. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. And the angel said to Joseph about Mary... She's going to have a son. You call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And when you get to John chapter 1 and verse 29, you have John the Baptist seeing Jesus coming. And behold, the Lamb of God, he said, who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he was about. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, the Bible says we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. So 
Here's what happens. Look, verse 3. They came to him bringing a paralytic. A paralytic. It's somebody who's paralyzed. Maybe from an accident. Maybe from some disease. Uh, we don't know, know what. But it means he's paralyzed. And these, these men bring a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof. Now, these roofs were typically flat, and they were covered with thatch to keep the rain out. And very often, it was the case that there was an outside staircase so that you could access the roof, roof and maybe you could use it for some purposes. But one of them surely said, look, we got to do something. Another one said, I have an idea. Let's go up on the roof. We'll take apart parts of the roof, and we'll let him down. we got some ropes here. We could do it. You want to tear apart the roof? We'll fix it. We can fix it after it's finished. And so they did. Verse 4 says, They uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was laying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. You got to love these guys. He saw their faith. God saw, Jesus saw their faith. I think that the, the, the paralytic surely was involved in that. Not just the guys that were caring, but surely them too. And I like the word altruism. And if you're not familiar with the term, I hope that you will be. Altruism has to do with acts of kindness that we would do to others without any, any idea of any, any benefit to ourselves. I don't get anything out of this. I'm not going to be helped by this. I'm not going to get any monetary blessing from that. I get nothing. I don't do this because it's going to benefit me in any way. I just do it because I want to do a good thing. And I believe it's characteristic of Christians, altruistic acts. And so here are these four. What are they going to get out of it? I don't think they're getting anything. And, and Jesus, the Bible says, saw their faith. Hold on a minute. Faith? He saw their faith? Faith is an intangible how can you see somebody's faith? Well, it's like electricity. Can you see electricity? No. You, you can see what electricity does. That's how faith is. You can see what it does, but you can't see electricity. James 2 and 26 says, faith without works is dead. Remember? And then, and then James argues the point in James 2 and verse 18. And he says, you say... You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Got it? The Bible says that Jesus saw their faith. He saw their faith. Now verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Okay, now this is, now it gets really interesting. I would say that Jesus is very tender in, in Matthew's account, in, in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew points out that he says, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. He said, cheer up. Cheer up. Must have been hard to be paralyzed. In this moment, must have just been frightening. And look at what we're doing. And he's let down through the roof. And here's all these people watching him. And cheer up. Your sins are forgiven you. This is, a, this is incidental, but I find it interesting. Uh, in verse 5, the word son, son, your sins be forgiven you. That's found in the Greek language 99 times in the New Testament. 77 times it's, it's translated child. Like a teacher would say to his student, my child, this or that. 
that's very tender, and Jesus puts him at ease. Cheer up, my child. Your sins are forgiven you. Oh, well. I, you know, the, the, the people in the room who are these scribes, these Pharisees, these, these leaders, powerful people, and I guess they were donning their garb, and you could see, the, oh, they're delighted. They've got him now. They have him. Whoa, did you hear what he says? And Jesus knows their thoughts. He reads their minds, and he says, why are you reasoning in your mind? Who can forgive sins but God only? Read, read along with me now. I'm in verse 6, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can, who can forgive sins but God only? They can't wait to get home and get on Facebook. They're going to post this. I'm telling you what right now, they've got him. The very idea that he would be so arrogant, so proud is to be God. And he would forgive people's sins. Who does he think he is? And who he is, is brilliant. He is just so brilliant. We, we're having debate now. We're, we're, uh, we're for Lance to Leaders. And we have 18 students, 17 or 18 high school students in there who are training in debate. And they're, they're just wonderful. And one of the things that is true about debate in real debates is that there have been moments where one or the other in the debate would make a point, an observation so strong, it is so clear, so unget-aroundable, that the debate is over. Now, it may go another couple of nights, but it doesn't matter. The fact is that it was just, and I, I remember uh, Alan Hires, who's one of my heroes. Brother Hires is still living, a great gospel preacher, but also a great debater in his younger days. And I, I've told you this story. He, he debated one time a charismatic preacher who, who practiced um, snake handling and other kinds of so-called miracles that he would do. But, but he handled snakes and he would drink poison. He would go, or say he would, and he would go to Mark chapter 16 about the miraculous age. And Brother Hires was debating him. And at one point, Brother Hires brought a box and set it on the side of the pulpit there. And he, he said, now, I, I don't want you to open this box, and I don't want you to put your head because, in here because there's a rattlesnake in here. And there really was. There really was a live rattlesnake in that box. And, and um, he said, but now, I'm not encouraging you to do this because he'll bite you and you'll die. So I hope you don't do it. But if you would like an opportunity to prove what you're purporting here in this debate, well, it's here for you. Well, according to Brother Hires, at that moment, as if on cue, the rattlesnake did his thing. Have you ever been close to a rattlesnake when he sounded? I have. And I'm telling you, it'll spook you. And that's what happened in that debate. And it, it was just as I said. The debate went on, but it doesn't matter. It, you know what? The debate was over, and that man wasn't about to open that box. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's what's going to happen right here in Mark chapter 2. It's very similar. Something that is just devastating to these Jewish leaders. Jesus read their minds. Why do you reason these things in your hearts? He said to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Incidentally, there are three times in the New Testament when Jesus would just up and forgive someone. I don't mean randomly. I just mean that he would do it. Um, once it was, the, it was the woman who was called a sinner and she, she, she bathed his feet in ointment and her tears and 
Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And of course, you have Luke chapter 23, and you have the thief on the cross, and people want to be saved like the thief on the cross, and, and that can't be. You're never going to be like the thief on the cross. I, I just think it's interesting that, that nobody ever says, I want to be healed like the, I'm, I'm sorry, saved like the, like the paralytic was saved in Mark 2. Nobody ever says that. But Jesus, before he died, could, could forgive whomever he wished, and, and we're under a new law. When he died, he instituted, he brought in the new law, which is the New Testament, and we're under that law, and these others were not. That's, that's the answer to that question. Blasphemy was punishable by stoning. Leviticus chapter 24. Let that soak in. He's guilty of blasphemy. That's what they're thinking. They can't wait to get out because they're going to accuse him of blasphemy, and they'll just stone this man. That's what's going to happen. We've got him. But now read on. Verse 8, middle of the verse. Why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Now you've got to get the logic. Get the logic. It's, it's, it's not more difficult. It's not more miraculous. It's not more... There's not more evidence in saying I'm from heaven in my performing this miracle and healing this man than there is to say your sins are forgiven. Now, let me pause here to say that not everybody who had miraculous ability could forgive sins. That's not the point. But if the confirmation of what he's saying, I have the ability to forgive sins, when he's confirming that by this miracle, performing this miracle as evidence of that statement, then the miracle proves it. And that's what happened. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? But that you may know. Now, you might want to underline verse 10 because this is critical. It's huge. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, go your way to your house. All right, I'm going to... I'm going to heal him so that you will know that I've got power to forgive sins. Now, you go ahead and try to deny that. Go ahead. The problem is it's unget-aroundable. Now, verse 12. I want you to see the superlatives in verse 12. That's what I'm calling them, and I think that's a valid term. And, And I've underlined them in my Bible. So, come on down with me. There we are. And immediately he rose. This is important. He's a paralytic. He's paralyzed. I'm telling you, nothing immediately happens. But it does on this day. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. It may be my favorite miracle of Jesus. It is simply brilliant. That the shock of of this paralytic being let down and then Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven you. Does that make you a little dizzy? What? What? What is it that you're talking about? And he was setting the trap. He was setting the trap as to make the point to these Jewish leaders so they could get it. It's not going to do anybody in that room any harm. But they, 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 uh, they... 
while trying to figure this out, he said, which is easier? I can say one or the other. Which is easier? And then he said, but that you may know that I have power on earth to forgive sins. Get up and take up your bed and go on to your house. And that's what happened. Now, you reckon that you could stand there and deny that Jesus is the Son of God? It is one of the boldest moves Jesus ever made. He knows that he's going to go to the cross one day. He knows it's not going to be very long. And when we get, when we get to verse 12, you see something amazing. Now, I, I must say to you as we close this sermon that Jesus is and was polarizing. It's very hard when, when you and I are in a room like this and we're worshiping God in the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is our world. He is our world. To, to try to stretch our minds around how that people could look at evidence like this and not serve him and not love him and not confess him. I don't get it. How could people reject Christ? I don't, I don't grasp that. And yet it's always been true. And what's going to happen is that these people in Capernaum who are so amazed with him right now, some of them are going to participate in the crucifixion. As a matter of fact, you want to know what's going to happen in, in just a very short amount of time is that Capernaum is going to, to, by and large, just reject Christ. And so here's Matthew 11 and verse 23. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heavens or to heaven will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you, the miracles, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. What's that? Logically, what I think is that if I, surely if people could watch a miracle, you could see it, that, that you would say, yes, in this case, you would say, yes, you must have the power to forgive sins because the man got up and walked. We know him. We know who he is. But it's shortly of whatever, whatever amazement they have is short-lived. The truth is that there are many people, not you or me, but there are lots of folks out there who don't value truth above their own personal interests. And the truth is that Jesus is the Son of God. And the truth is that there's a heaven and hell. And the truth is that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the truth is that without forgiveness, I'll never see, I'll never see heaven. That's the truth. Now, are you persuaded by that? I am. But in a case like this, you have people who are going to use every bit of persuasion they have to discourage people from the truth. Now, this, uh, this paralytic came in there diseased and broken and he was born by four good men and we're so thankful for them aren't we altruistic and he got with Jesus and he walks out of there carrying his own bed and it could be in this room or maybe somebody watching on live stream today spiritually you're, you're broken Spiritually, you're in your sin. And I'm going to tell you something. You can get with Christ. The result of which is that he'll wash you from your sins with his own blood. And that when you leave this room, or when you leave, whenever you leave the water of baptism, 
you're going to leave healed from that, the guilt of that sin because he will have forgiven you with his blood. I love him. I, I, hope, I hope when you study this wonderful passage in Mark chapter 2, I hope you'll love him too and love him more. He's brilliant. There's nobody like him. He's the son of God. He is the son of God. I wonder if there's someone today here who would like to obey the gospel. And now would be such a great time. We, um, we're, we're just so interested in helping you become a Christian. Name Christ. Put on your Lord in baptism. And if you need the prayers of Christians, you know that we'll pray with you today. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.